back to our second episode of Laugh, Think, Blow Your Mind. This is the podcast where we review and share the best bits of content from around the grounds. We also want you to join in and recommend anything funny or interesting that I should be looking at and reviewing on the show. Now, you can recommend anything you like um, from podcast shows or episodes, YouTube, or basically anything that made you laugh, think, or blew your mind. To get in contact with the show, please email ltbympodcast at gmail.com, or you can use the Q&A feature um, through the Spotify um, app. Now, believe it or not, we actually had listeners um, from our first episode last week. Now, we didn't get any emails through to recommend podcasts, so I've actually asked my wife if she could send me a few of her recommendations, and we're going to review um, one of her podcasts on the end at the end of the show. Now that's going to do it for the intro. Let's get straight into it and talk about our first review from my own listening from the last couple of weeks. I'm really excited to share with you this first podcast for this week. They say you shouldn't, you should keep your best for last, but stuff that. Let's get right into the good stuff straight away. Uh, the podcast that we're going to be reviewing is called The Daily Stoic. This is a podcast hosted by Ryan Holiday, and this guy is amazing. I've listened to him on um, heaps of different shows. He's um, often a guest on a lot of the uh, podcasts that I regularly listen to, and it's just a wealth of knowledge on stoicism and just life in general. His guest on the episode that I had to listen to was Kevin Kelly, and you might be like me and have absolutely no clue who that guy is, so I'll save you a Google search. Kevin Kelly is best known as being the founding executive director and editor for Wired Magazine. Uh, he's also a published author, and his latest book is why he's doing the rounds on shows at the moment. Um, this interview was actually enough for me to go out and buy his book. It's called Excellent Advice for Living, Wisdom I Wish I Had Known Earlier. And I actually have already read it twice. Okay, well, uh, I've only listened to it twice. I bought the audio um, book version, but I think that's kind of the same thing. Now, I do plan to share the best bits from that book uh, in a coming episode as well because there's heaps of really good stuff in there. Okay, let's get into it. I'm going to start us off um, with an interesting concept that they uh, talked about on this episode, and it was to do with the spanning of time throughout history by where two individuals were connected and they spanned that time. They used the concept of, of handshakes, or you could also just say new. Basically, going back in history, the oldest person that was alive at the time could shake the hands of um, someone quite young, and then they go on to have a long life as well. And two long lifetimes could span a really long period of time. And they talked about going back in the past, how many connections or how many handshakes away were these historic events? And it was a really interesting way to, to frame the question. Uh, the other thing that it made me consider is who is the oldest person that I've ever met or shook hands with? I like saying who have I met because shaking hands with is a little bit more less of a connection. And the oldest person that I've met is probably in their late 80s. I don't know why, but I just thought that I would have known someone much older than that over my last 35 years. And maybe I have, but I can't remember. But I thought it was an interesting question. So I started asking some people at work and some friends and I asked the same question. And it's to my surprise, there were a few who did have like a grandparent or someone that was quite old. 
But to my surprise, a lot of people were in the same boat as me. They actually hadn't met anyone particularly old or outstandingly old. And however, when I did ask the question, people would often provide their answer with a story into who this old person was and how they knew them or what, how they were connected. And it did create a pretty cool conversation each time. Um, so I'm going to throw it out there. So if anyone listening to this podcast episode has met someone um, quite old, how about you email in to the show and let me know? And I might even share, you know, if we get any responses, I might even share if someone has known someone quite old and I'd love to hear the story behind that connection as well. All right, into the clip we shall go. Let's have a listen. Well, Winston Churchill was personally there for the last cavalry charge of the British Empire <laughs> yeah. and then lives to see the Beatles. Right. And, you know, like there, are, good. there are lives like that. Right, 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 right. That have that sort of connection to the past. I, I knew this guy here in Austin. He died three or four years ago. His name was Richard Overton. And when he died, he was the oldest man in the world. He was 112. I was thinking, so my, I, I took my oldest, he was like two then to meet him. And I, one thing I think about is like, my son will never meet anyone born earlier than that. Right. right? right, right so right. like my son, however old he lives, he touches a person born in 1905 right, 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 or 1906. But then, yeah, you think about who was the oldest living person when that person was right, born. Right, right, right. Yeah, 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 I did this idea that I think Tim Urban did even better, but of um, doing generations. And I would say, like, if you could touch somebody who was living and someone who's about yeah. to die, and that the number of generations between that yeah. to, like, back to Jesus or somebody is, like, only— you know, it's, it's not that many. It's like, what is it, a couple hundred? Somebody it's, told me it was six handshakes, like yeah. demonstra right. de demonstrable right. people who who knew each other, who right. touched uh, Queen Elizabeth arcing a huge punch. Right, exactly, punch. right, right. But to go from uh, Obama to George Washington. Right, right. Yeah, like 13 generations or something. It's it's not very far. So you can actually imagine passing something verbally yeah. in, in, in that span. The next clip is um, one of the first questions that Ryan asks Kevin in the episode um, because he has an interesting take on whether you're asking for feedback or are you actually asking or seeking advice. And I really liked this because we should actually specify what we are wanting. And they talk about that if you ask for feedback, it typically is a bit more critical. However, if you're wanting to get some suggestions or help, you ask for advice. And it's a little bit more delicate, their responses typically. But rather than listening to me, let's have a listen to how Kevin answers this question. What is the difference between feedback and advice? Because you talk about yeah. as one gets advice, how one asks for it right. can determine whether you're getting feedback or advice. Um, feedback will often include um, criticism and complaint. Hmm. Advice tends to be a little bit more positive and forward-looking um, and because someone's giving you advice, it's usually not about like something you did wrong in the past. It's usually about next time you do this or it's... it's Here's what I would do. It's forward-bent yeah. a little bit sure. more. And therefore, it's it's um, I find it's more actionable. Following on from that conversation, they go on to talk about reading widely and how getting advice from the right place is so important. And also, Kevin talks about how, as a parent, the impact of reading to your kids is, is so high. Um, in last week's episode, uh, if you remember, we talked about Ed Catmull, the founder of Pixar, 
who made the point of emphasizing um, this same thing, saying it was really important from who you got your inspiration from or who you got your advice from is another way of saying it. To me, reading is the great, we're talking about books, reading is the way to not have to learn everything by trial and error. Right. Somebody either smarter than you or much dumber than you has been in the same situation <laughs> and you should benefit from right. what either of them did or right. what exactly. both of them did. Right. Exactly, yes. One of my bits of advice is that the best schooling you can give your kids is to read to them mm -hmm. by far. Mm -hmm. It'll be more impact than anything else that happens in their lives if you read to them. They really do jump from concept to different concepts in this conversation, or at least in the first half of this conversation. And this next concept that I wanted to share was important because it's a really good way at looking at the, um, the way that we make big decisions in life. Kevin talks about framing decisions and goals as prototypes rather than having a grand design of your life. And I think this is great. Um, just as an FYI, a prototype, I looked up the definition. Uh, it's a first or preliminary version of a device or vehicle from which other forms are de um, developed. So Ryan expanded on this by saying that decisions are almost always reversible as well, and that we make such big deals about them at the time, uh, but it's often not needed. And it's just a waste of time, energy, and stress. So let's have a listen to the, the conversation around this concept. That you want to prototype your life instead of making grand plans. Yes. This idea you're kind of inching, iterating towards things instead of making, oh, I'm going to make a bookstore and I'm going to move there and it's going to be forever. No, no, no. It's like it's a trial. It's an experiment. It's a prototype. Yeah. We try something. If that works, we go forward. And that idea of prototyping was absolutely something I wish I'd known when I was younger because yes. I've been a maker all my life, but I didn't have, I didn't know about prototyping. I didn't know about this iterative process, even in writing. I thought that if you made something, went all the way to the end and it didn't work or whatever, that was a, kind of like a failure. The new model is you build one to throw away. You, you, you write a first draft to throw away. Sure. You evolve and iterate towards it. And that's been transformative. And I really wished I knew that when I was younger. The biggest decision I made early in my life that I could have used more advice on was a decision you also made, the decision to drop out of college. Right. And I realized that there there wasn't there wasn't anyone who could really give me good advice on this this thing. Sure, sure, sure. I, th I think we kind of touched on this. It's like an experiment. So you you want to make it, you want to do it so that you keep your options open. Mm. You don't want to burn bridges behind you. You don't want to step into something where you reduce your options. Sure. So like for college these days, taking a gap year sure. is one way to kind of try out this idea of maybe I shouldn't be here at all. Let me see what it looks like if I don't have, can I keep myself busy and moving forward? So gap year would be one way to sure. drop out of college without burning, you know, leaving options open. Getting married, people, you know, they, they live together. They have all kinds of ways in which you're going to try that out. Sure. So I think, I think that I would emphasize this idea of prototyping your life rather than making grand decisions. Make iterative decisions that you could reverse. And most decisions, except for, I don't know, getting a leg amputated, are pretty reversible. I think understanding that things are reversible is really freeing and probably a good piece of advice unto itself. <laughs> okay. Right? Because like when I was dropping out of college, like I remember I went, I went to the registrar's right. office and I said, I'm here to drop out of college. And they were like, 
that's not a thing. <laughs> they, they were like, you can fill out this form. And I actually just found it. They were like, it's yeah. $60 to uh, pause oh, your, your classes. classes. Right, right. And then they were like, you can come back literally whenever you want. Yeah. For the next 10 years. You're right. And I, I remember thinking, well, I wish someone would have told me this, but sometime during the last week when I was torturing myself. <laughs> and then sometime when I went to my parents and they more or less yeah. disowned me right. for this, you know, life changing decision, which was actually just a, a one semester break on auto renew. Right. And, and so we, we tend to think, Oh, if I do this or that, that's me forever. Ever, right. So I'm I'm trying to think of how this is my my little assignment to myself yeah. is how I reduce this all to yeah. this little tiny phrase and it's sort of like the best way to make big, big decisions is to not make them big. Yes, to make the littlest decisions. Yeah, to reduce all your decisions to little a series of little decisions. Mm-hmm. Now we get to go on to the second half of the interview and the conversation moved into parenting advice of all things. And before you switch off and uh, or skip ahead to the next podcast review, uh, these two have a really good conversation and some advice and they share their life experiences. And I th- it was really worthwhile listening to. Potentially unbiased because I've got two kids. I've got one on the way. So it was particularly relevant to me. Maybe that's why I found it interesting, but I hope you do too. I'm going to race through the next couple of clips as I think they're pretty much self-explanatory. The first one that I'm going to share is talking about creating rituals in your family. Another um, bit of advice, again, something I wish I'd known earlier, I, I almost have a regret about it, but it was to manufacture, to invent as many rituals as you possibly can. Traditions. Traditions, rituals, and stuff. And a ritual is almost defined as if you do it three times in a row. Okay. It's a ritual. And it doesn't matter whether it's like deeply symbolic or religiously significant. It's just something you're doing. And the key thing is there has to be anticipation. This next clip talks about quality time uh, in the family, but that that's not really a thing. It's all the time that you spend with your family is quality time. The good, the garbage, the bad. It's all important. There's one I have, I actually have a coin on my desk, so I look at it all the time. And um, it just says, uh, all time is quality time. Yes. Or it's all Jerry, quality Jerry, time. Jerry Seinfeld. Yes. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you heard his rant Yeah, he that. said garbage time yeah, versus quality time. time. He says, forget the quality <laughs> time, give me the garbage, garbage time. time. Right. And so I shortened that for me is that it's all quality time. time. Right. That being stuck in traffic right. is quality time. Right. Sitting on the couch is quality time. Um, you know, going to school is quality right, time. Right, right. A- any t- like because you think about it with like a parent, like we're gonna take them on this big trip. Yeah, like we're going on vacation, and then um, you forget that driving yeah. to the airport is part of the trip, sure. and being stuck at the airport is right, part right, of the right. trip, and waiting for your bags is right, part right. of the trip. There's no moment when the quality time yeah, begins yeah. or ends. It's all quality time if you choose to one be present for it, yeah. not be an anxious, nervous. Sure. Stressed out mess, which I am, uh, find myself falling into Uh all the time. And if you're not, you know, in some anticipation mode of, I can't wait till we get there. Right. Cause you don't know if you're going to get there, but you know, you're all in the car strapped in right right, now. Let's enjoy that. This next bit of advice talks about how it's not about how much money you spend on your kids or your family, it's about how much time you spend with them say it in my book is that you should spend half as much money on your child and twice as much time as Mm -hmm. you think time is 
children are just not at all generally sensitive about lack of money or how much money you have. This doesn't register. What they are paying attention to is how much time yeah. you're giving them, which they're very sensitive to. There was so much more that I could have added for you for this episode. Uh, it was so good, but I'm going to leave it there. I highly recommend that you go over to The Daily Stoic with Ryan Holiday and have a listen to this episode with Kevin Kelly. Now we're going to move on and continue in the Make You Think theme that we're on and talk about our next podcast for this episode. That podcast is Founders. Founders was featured last in last week's episode. But for those who didn't listen, Founders is a brilliant podcast hosted by David Senra. Uh, David reads biographies on founders throughout history and reviews those books on his show. This week, I listened to episode number 220 on Enzo Ferrari. The Man, the Machine is the name of the autobiography. Um, I have to start with an admission. Um, I had no idea that Ferrari was the founder's surname. I just thought Ferrari was a cool company name. Now, Ferrari is one of the most iconic brands in the world, and I wonder how many people actually know where the name Ferrari came from. I would also like to add that you don't need to be a car, car enthusiast to enjoy this episode um, or this segment of the podcast. I certainly don't fall into that camp myself, but I still thought it was quite enjoyable and interesting. Now, driving straight into it, um, the first takeaway that stood out to me is that knowledge compounds. And you see this in so many stories shared on this podcast, and this was no different. Enzo Ferrari fell in love with car racing at an early age, and he devoted his life to it for over 60 years. He died at the age of 90 in 1988, and he was still working on cars up until that day. I think it's worthwhile that we start with a little background into the life of Enzo Ferrari. He was born in Italy in 1898. Uh, it talks about him hating school and he just wanted to get out there into the workforce and uh, get a job. His first connection with car racing occurred when he was 10, when his father took Enzo and his brother to, a, to see a race and he fell in love. Later saying that he found these events um, to be immensely exciting, and this is when he knew what he wanted to do with the rest of his life. However, the book explains that nothing from his youth suggested that he had any extraordinary talents. He was basically just a normal kid, more or less. When he was 16, uh, when world he was 16 when World War One started. Uh, he was 18 when his father died of pneumonia, and uh, drifted through many menial jobs and had no real direction in life. He got drafted into the war, and when his service ended in 1918, he was just 20 years old. He became reacquainted, reacquainted with car racing after this time, and he went to go find jobs working for car manufacturers. This didn't go as planned, as he didn't have any experience, and he also had to compete with the large number of veterans, um, also um, coming from, from the war, uh, also looking for jobs at the time. Uh, he ended up getting a very low-level entry job, uh, a very low-level entry-level job uh, as a handyman. But part of this job, he would actually be required to drive and transport trucks. And for this, he needed a driver's license, something that wasn't very common at the time. Remembering cars uh, and manufacturing of cars was actually very um, new at that stage. Um, the book said he actually had license number 1,363. So he was one of the very earliest licensed drivers in the country, as a bit of an interesting fact. 
Um, he meets people through this job and he ends up moving from one job to another, but starts to display a level of grittiness and determination for which he will later be known. He managed to climb to the level of chief test driver for a new high-performance car manufacturer. And in this role, he was allowed to race cars for them. So he would actually go to car races and events and, um, and drive their test vehicles for, him, for them. Enzo Ferrari then began an association with Alfa Romeo, and this lasted over 20 years. He started off that relationship by actually just racing cars, then he moved on to selling cars, and that really helped because he had a, a reputation for being a good race driver, um, so he was able to sell cars quite successfully. He ended up um, moving up to the position of head of the race team for Alfa Romeo. He led this team to the absolute pinnacle of the sport. They were, they were um, recognized as the best, and that was um, under Enzo Ferrari's lead. Now, one of the characteristics that was so important um, and, and one of the reasons why Enzo Ferrari was so successful with Alfa Romeo was his um, pure perseverance and his persistence. All right, so that'll probably do for the background into Enzo Ferrari so that you can sort of catch up a little bit. Um, that was about an hour's worth of listening in the episode, condensed down just to a couple of bullet points. Now I'm gonna go through a few of the interesting topics that were raised in the episode. And the first one I really wanted to point out was that Enzo Ferrari actually wasn't such a wonderful human being that that summary I've just gone through might suggest. Yes, he did very well, he was successful, um, but the episode also talks about how he was a manipulator of men and known for having fits of rage if things weren't done right. He definitely had a drive towards absolute perfection and he wouldn't let anything get in the way of that and uh, the clip I'm going to share is an instance where this took place. Uh, so it says, the persona of the man who was running the operation was beginning to take shape that would remain consistent throughout his life. While still only in his mid-30s, Ferrari was firmly in control of the operation and given to fits of temper that would descend on the place like summer, th summer thunderstorms. A badly fabricated part. Remember, they're, they're, so it's focused on racing, but they're, they're, they're making cars to fund the racing operation and he, you can think of him as the exact opposite of Ford, right? It's very interesting that he, they even had the negotiation. I don't personally don't think Enzo even considered selling to them. But the idea, you know, Ford had this, this he was a leading, if you go and listen to my podcast, I don't Henry Ford, like he figured out how to apply mass production techniques to automobiles before anybody else did, right? And he was better at it than anybody else. Ferrari's in the opposite end of the spectrum. These are, art, these are handmade products built by italian artisans okay it's not at all what uh what like it's a complete opposite strategy that henry ford took so it says uh, a badly fabricated part uh, or the late arrival of a worker would send his temper soaring and strong men scurrying for cover at the same time he could be a model of decorum transforming himself into char into a charming leader d when the moment demanded it as when a high-born noble or fascist official remember we're in this is italy before world war Two, right? Our fascist official arrived at the Scuderia, or a wealthy customer expressed interest in spending extra. Enzo Ferrari was on his way to becoming the consummate manager of men. This is repeated a hundred times in the book, that his greatest skill was the fact that he was able to, to manage people, to, to recruit the very best talent, 
to manage them, to manipulate them. To He's not doing the work. He's not the engineer. He's not the designer. He's the agitator of men. I can't, uh, like, I can't repeat that enough, okay? Uh, he was, uh, Enzo Ferrari was on his way to becoming the consummate manager of men. Not docile, soft-willed men, but proud, fiercely competitive, egocentric men, these are drivers we're talking about now, whose livelihood, if not their very reason for living, depended on this most demanding and unforgiving of sports. When I think about a Ferrari, one of the desirable aspects, to me at least, is its exclusivity. Not everyone can own one because they're so expensive. And that's part of the desire. And Enzo actually knew this very early on. So in this part of the episode, it talks about how Enzo used this exact scarcity principle to drive up the value of his brand. He would constantly limit production, made his his products more lusted after, more uh, exclusive. So at this point, they're going on for a while. They've only built 70 cars. Now they're building them by hand, like I mentioned earlier. And the people buying them, it's like the world's elite. So you have prince this person and king this person and emperor this person and shah of this country and crown prince. I'm just listing, reading you this list. Then you have people like the DuPonts, who one of the wealthiest American families at the time. Um, all This is who he targeted first. Uh, customers or other wealthy customers would travel all over the world just to this his little factory in uh, in Marinello rather, and you know he'd be given a tour and the and the customers like I want one and he'd have like unused unsold cars out back and he's like oh I'm sorry you can't have one he would just tell me no it's going to be you know a year two years so he did this intentionally he understood that if you tell somebody no especially somebody that's wealthy powerful used to getting their way it only makes them want desire that object more. This next clip describes what they believe Enzo Ferrari's most important skill was, or the skill that drove um, potentially more of his success than any other skill or attribute. And let's go back to what he felt, what his greatest skill was, and maybe the most, the greatest skill one could possibly have if you want to build a successful organization or team, right? His greatest skill was recruiting talented people. It is often said that his greatest skill was his ability to recognize talent. This was probably true. I would add one more part of his most important skill or attribute. And and that was actually, it was not just hiring the most talented people, which he obviously was very good at, but he also got every ounce of talent and skill out of them. And he drove people to their absolute limit. And the result was greatness. And I instantly, through this part of the, the section of the book, I instantly thought of Steve Jobs. This is another founder who was able to get the right people, but get the absolute most out of them. Um, for the success of the company. Finally, I found this last clip to be really insightful. And that was that Enzo Ferrari was actually happier when he was losing races because he would have actually something to fix or fine tune or improve. This is very counterintuitive. Normally you'd be happier or you'd expect people to be happier when they're winning rather than losing. Now I thought about this for my own context and it's in my approach to playing chess. Um, my approach could definitely be improved using this mentality. So in, in online chess games, you can actually review the game afterwards and see which moves were good or poor or, or ones that you could have improved on. And I realized that I was actually only reviewing the games that I won, not the ones that I had lost or not many that I, of the ones that I lost. And I could be learning a lot more from my losses than from reviewing the wins. So with that in mind, here's the clip. And I thought Ferrari had a really, a really counterintuitive point on losing. I want to bring to your attention. Uh, so there's a a um, 
a writer for the New York Times, this guy named Daly, and he's spending some time with Ferrari, says, Daly observed that Ferrari appeared to be happier when he was losing, which jibes with the mechanics, the mechanics working at Ferrari, with the mechanics observation that the race shop on Monday was more serene following a defeat than a victory. But why? Ferrari explained, there is always something to learn. One never stops learning, particularly when one is losing. When one loses, one knows what has to be done. When one wins, one is never sure. Okay, so that's where we're going to leave it for the Founders Podcast, episode number 220 with Enzo Ferrari, the man and the machine. Um, I, I did enjoy the episode and I hope you did too. Now, before we get on to the guest segment where I go through the uh, recommended uh, podcast from a guest, I want to just do one more podcast from my um, listening from the last couple of weeks because it made me laugh. And I sort of don't didn't really want to include another episode of the Two Bears, One Cave um, podcast because I was, I'm trying to uh, introduce you to lots of different podcasts. But when a good guest pops up, I just have to dive in and have a listen to it. And that was definitely the case because they had Jim Jeffries on. Jim Jeffries is an Australian comedian who has actually been living and working over in in the States for um, probably decades now. He is fantastic. Um, You can tell within a few seconds of listening to him that he's still got his Australian accent. And I love that he talks about Australia so much. But just to give you a little taste of Jim Jeffries before we get into the actual podcast episode, um, I'm going to share a three-minute clip from a 15-minute track of one of his most popular, or what he's best known for, is his, his, his take on gun control in the US. The entire 15-minute bit is available on Spotify. If you search for Jim Jeffries, you can actually find it and listen to the whole 15-minute seg- segment, and it's definitely worth a listen. Um, here is the first three minutes of that clip, just for a bit of a taste. I'm going to talk about something now that sort of splits the crowd uh, a little bit. Uh, gun control. Now, mate, wait, before you get, don't, don't get excited because the other people have guns. The anti-gun people are like, yeah, do it, Jim. No, let's just shh. Now, before I start saying this, I want to say this, right? I believe in your right as Americans to have guns. I'm not trying to stop you from having guns. All I'm saying is this is my personal belief on the opinion. My opinion on the, uh, it doesn't matter. I don't like guns. Right? I'm going to say some things that are just facts. Right? In Australia, we, we had guns. Right? right up until 1996. And in 1996, Australia had the biggest massacre on earth. Still hasn't been beaten. And <laughs> Now, after that, they banned the guns. Now, in the 10 years before Port Arthur, there was 10 massacres. Since the gun ban in 1996, there hasn't been a single massacre since. I don't know how or why this happened. Uh, <laughs> Maybe it was a coincidence, right? Now, please understand that I understand that Australia and America are two vastly different cultures with different people, right? I get it. In Australia, we had the biggest massacre on earth, and the Australian government went, that's it, no more guns. And we all went, and we all went, yeah, right then, that seems fair enough. For you. Now, in America, you have the Sandy Hook massacre where little tiny children died and your government went, maybe we'll get rid of the big guns? (laughs) And 50% of you went, fuck you, don't take my guns! (laughs) So here's, 
Here's where it gets confusing, right? Now, as I said, I'm all for your Second Amendment rights. I think you should be able to have guns. It's in your constitution. What I am not for is bullshit arguments and lies. There is one argument and one argument alone for having a gun, and this is the argument. Fuck off. I like guns. <laughs> it's not the best argument, but it's all you've got. And there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with saying, I, I like something, don't take it away from me, but don't give me this other bullshit. The main one is, I need it for protection. I need to protect me, I need to protect my family. <laughs> really? Is that why they're called assault rifles? Is it? Never heard of these fucking protection rifles you speak of? <laughs> protection? What the fuck are you talking about? You, you have a gun in your house, they, you're 80% more likely to use that gun on yourself than to shoot someone else. And people think, well, that'll never happen to me. You don't know that, because you know what? From time to time, we all get sad. <laughs> One day you're happy, then you're sad, and then, oh, oh it was... Okay, now you're gonna have a little idea of who Jim Jeffries is and his style of comedy, and that will help as we move into the episode. Before we do, I do have to give a bit of a warning about Bert Kreischer. Now, he is the host of the podcast. He's the one asking the questions, and he is hosting solo. And when Bert is hosting solo, the episodes tend to, how do we put this, um, go off track. He is, He's fantastic. I love Bert, but he's very unique. And you'll either love him or you hate him. Um, but for a first-time listener, I could understand how he would come off as a little annoying. Um, I would put it this way. It's fair to say that he isn't able to stay on one topic for very long, not because he's being rude, but because he finds so many different things interesting and it tri triggers for him the next topic to bring up or talk about. So his interviews do go off track, and sometimes it is annoying even to me because the guest is just about to tell a story or say something interesting and he railway, railroads the conversation. Now this podcast is normally hosted with two people and when it's that um, combination, it works really well. Luckily with Jim, uh, Jim Jeffries in this episode, Bert and Jim know each other. Um, so they sort of already know how each other work and talk. So that definitely helped. But Jim himself is very good at controlling a conversation so this whole episode does work. Uh, all right, let's jump straight into the part of the interview where Jim Jeffries tells a story about his friend who got into an English royal family party dressed as Osama bin Laden in the early 2000s. And he actually got in and spoke on stage on the microphone. And this is a situation where truth is really stranger than fiction. I have another one. I know the bloke who dressed up as Bin Laden with a large merkin, uh, like a, a, a pubic hair wig yeah. on, in a dress, wearing a turban, and sneaked into Prince William's 21st birthday and stole the microphone while he was on stage giving a speech, right? That's one of the greatest. If you get, if you get, <laughs> uh, Aaron Barshak is his name, um, Bin Laden. There we go. There's the bloke, right? So he was standing at the front of Windsor Castle, yeah. one of the oldest castles in the world. 
He was standing at the front. He used to call himself the comedy terrorist. There he is with his Merkin hanging out, right? Good God. Aaron's whole gig was, what Aaron used to do is, he was not getting enough stage time, so he used to dress like Bin Laden. In the early 2000s, in the early 2000s, he would dress as Bin Laden, he would jump on stage, steal the microphone from the comic and go, I'm the comedy terrorist, and get as many jokes out as quickly as he could before someone tackled him or dragged him off. Really? Or they booed him away, right? So he was always trying to get something done. So Aaron stood out the front of Windsor Castle, danced around in a turban and a dress, dressed like Bin Laden at the front of William's 21st birthday. All the royal family's going in there. The, the fancy dress, I believe, is called Colonials and Settlers or something. They're all dressed like, this is madness, right? Wait, wait, wait. For, they, they dress Prince, like- Prince William's 21st birthday, I believe everyone was dressed like Zulus and shit. There was a lot of cultural appropriation, Holy right? Holy no, shit. No blackface, do I know, but yeah. they were all wearing like- like, but they, know, but they could have if they would have. They, yeah, they looked like they were wearing outfits from coming to America, right? Wow. Anyway, so so uh, uh, anyway, yeah, so that's someone showing up for the party there. Shut the that, fuck up. Yeah, that's some posh kid. Can't do that now. That's some posh cunt from Eaton. Right? Oh my God, <laughs> that's fucking great. This is only in the early 2000s, right? Holy so, shit. So they all rocked up in those outfits, right? Now he's dressed as Bin Laden with a turban with a pubic hair wig. He jumps over the fence of Windsor Castle, right, and just, like, doesn't know what to – okay, he's just wandering around, and one of the security guys comes up and goes, excuse me, what are you doing? He's private school educated, Aaron, right? So he can put the voice on. So he just goes like this. He goes, oh, I've had too much to drink, and I've I've got myself – I've walked out some door to have a cigarette, and I don't know where I am. Uh, and the, the 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 guy laughed, walked him through six checkpoints, Oh, this guy got lost, walked him back into the party. The security walked him into the party. Then he's standing there dressed as Bin Laden. And they're all dressed as fucking Zulu warriors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that he just sort of fits in. They're like, oh, this guy's gone for it, right? He didn't look out of place at Prince William's 21st birthday, dressed as Osama Bin Laden, right? Then he, then he got on stage. He steals the microphone off William. William thinks it's one of his chums doing a trick on him, or maybe Harry's done something. (laughs) And he stood there. Aaron gets up and does his stand-up. He's never been on stage this long. He runs out of material after about five or six minutes. Shut the fuck up. And he's just there, and he sort of goes, oh, I'm not not meant to be here. And he, he tells them, I should be kicked out, right? So Aaron gets Aaron gets locked into a dungeon. It's a fucking castle, man. He gets thrown into, into the, the dungeon, dungeon, right? Holy shit. Back where Henry used to put his wives. Yes, yes, yes. Fuck. This, 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 the very same. So he's thrown into a dungeon. And then fucking the guy that, that the, the, the main security guy walked him through. <coughs> he's standing in front of the cell like this. And he goes, and this is very funny. Like he goes, he goes, oh, you're in trouble, mister. You're in so much fucking <laughs> trouble. You can't believe how much trouble you are in. And then Aaron goes, not as much as you. <laughs> of course, he's the guy who yeah. walked him through. That guy's, that guy's. Not up. as much as you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His job's over. Yeah, he's gone. <laughs> he's gone. He just brought a terror. Uh, he brought in Osama bin Laden <laughs> into his fucking. Oh, he was standing six feet from the Queen and Prince Charles. Everyone, the, the, the next six people who are in line for the throne, he was standing there dressed as Osama Holy bin Laden shit. on the stage and he was walked in by a security guard. I told you it was hard to believe. The next clip I wanted to add in because it made me laugh. But also, I just wanted to highlight how good Jim Jeffries is at telling stories. 
This whole episode was full of little stories like this one, and I'm not going to be able to share all of them because one, it would take too long, but two, I don't want to spoil it for you if you go and listen to the episode as well. Um, But if you like what you heard so far and you like this next clip, um, do head over to the Two Bears, One Cave um, episode number 184 and have a listen to the whole episode. Uh, Or if you want to, just go down a Jim Jeffries rabbit hole. You won't be disappointed in doing that. Okay, let's have a listen to this little story that Jim shares. I'll tell you, I'll tell you my favorite story about having uh, uh, my, so my, my, my father-in-law is an Indian fellow, but he grew up in, in, in uh, London, Cockney accent, and his name's Derek, isn't he? Derek. Yeah. Derek, Derek's an Indian fellow, talks like this, I'm Derek, right? Follow Tottenham, don't I? Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, so my dad meets Derek. So my father-in-law and my father meet each other over Christmas and we're about to spend three weeks together, right, in a house I got in Sydney, right? And so, so, uh, so my dad, we're driving up to the house and he's about to meet my in-laws and my father, old school Australian bloke, he wants to get everything right, you know, he wants to, you know, and he goes, so what's your father-in-law's name? And I said, Derek. And he goes, Daruk. Daruk. Stop trying to ethnic it up, Dave. Yeah, yeah. Just, just, just keep just keep it. Derek. And he goes, I've got it, I've got it, I've got it, I've got it. And then he meets him. Hello, Eric. And you're like... <laughs> But he was just oh. in such a panic because he didn't want to do it right. Like that's not my dad being racist, saying Daruk. That's my dad trying to trying to do his best. Yeah, trying to say the right thing and not upset anyone. But like, you know, they got on like a house on fire. Best Did mates. You- okay, that's all I'm going to share from that episode. I could have clipped ten different stories, but this one's worth a listen. So as I said, head over there, have a listen for yourself. Finally, now we get to have a listen to what was recommended by our guest, my wife, Coralie. Now, she admitted that her listening style probably wasn't my cup of tea, and I obviously, uh, knowing her listening style, did agree. But there was one podcast, one of her favorite shows, that she really wanted to share with me. Now, she, she did send me about five different episodes from the one podcast, and that was great because I could have a scan through and see what took my eye. The podcast that she sent through to me was called Just the Gist. Basically, the theme of this podcast is they dive into an interesting news story or topic and they give you just the gist so that you have something interesting, a little bit more than surface knowledge um, to get to talk about at your next social catch-up or dinner. The episode that I selected was titled The Teenager Who Mailed Himself from Melbourne to London and for obvious reasons this one grabbed my attention. I thought for our first clip rather than me have explained the episode I'd have them provide their teaser from the top of their episode. Very drizzly spring morning in 1965, a middle-aged couple in Cardiff, Wales, got a knock on their front door and the husband went to open the door to find there were half a dozen men with notepads and cameras standing on the porch. Clearly, they were reporters and they asked if this was the house where Brian Robson lived and the homeowner told them, well, yes and no. He was Brian's father and this was where Brian had grown up, but Brian had moved to Australia. So if they wanted to talk to him, they were going to need to call him in Melbourne. And one of the reporters replied, well, see, that's why we're here, Mr. Robson. Brian's actually in hospital in America. Long story, he tried to post himself from Melbourne to London in a wooden crate. He wound up in Los Angeles, half dead, 
maybe we should come in and tell you all about it. And Mr. Robson Senior was sort of like, I suppose, yes, that would be a good idea. (laughs) Now, I do like the theme of this podcast. My uh, critique would be that it's a little slow for my liking. I think the story could have been cut down by 20 or 30 minutes. Um, But all in all, it was quite good. The headline of the episode does give away the fact that this lad, he airmails himself in a wooden box, and not to anyone's surprise, it goes terribly wrong. Have a listen to the box that he decided to use for his shipment. This made me very uncomfortable just hearing about it. Sturdy, but not too heavy, something with the right dimensions to be able to fit him and his suitcase. And after a few days of looking, he found one that was 96 centimetres long, 76 centimetres tall, and 66 centimetres deep. So we're talking about something that is quite small. This foolproof (laughs) plan of his, he genuinely just couldn't foresee any major crap-ups. But then after only three hours in the crate, he was already pretty sure that's where he was going to die. He made some very minor modifications to the crate once he got it home. He attached a bit of rope to two points inside it that was going to act as his kind of seatbelt to sort of hold him in place. And he installed a little hook in the ceiling of the box that was going to hold a little hand torch that he'd need along the way. And then he got inside to make sure that he could fit in there with his suitcase, his pillow, his water bottle, pee bottle, and of course, his book of Beatles lyrics, as well as a little hammer he was taking that he was planning to use to open the crate to get himself out of it once he got to London. And so he was like, he, when he fit into the box, he was sort of like contorted, right? Like he was in a, uh, it's not like he was lying down on no. some pillows just like hanging out. He was sort of in a weird position trying to get himself in there with the suitcases. Knees up in his chest, so kind oh of God. like a fetal position and most of the time he was going to spend with his arms wrapped around his knees. So he could sit upright but he would not be able to extend his legs or even extend his arm completely. And he genuinely thought that he was going to do this for what he believed was 48 hours. Mm-hmm. That's right. Now, if that didn't give you claustrophobia, this next clip will definitely do the trick. Listen to how he his plans went from bad to worse very quickly. When he was in Sydney, the crate was moved off the first plane just after it landed and it should have gone straight onto the second plane, but something had apparently gone wrong. Plans had been changed because Brian's crate was put aside in a storage unit for, according to Brian, 22 hours waiting to be put on the next flight. And that is bad enough in itself, but it's a 100,000 times worse when you know that the crate had been stacked upside down the <gasps> entire time which meant all of Brian's body weight was sort of crushing down oh on his my neck God. and his head. Yeah. How did he survive? How did mm-hmm. he survive this whole thing? Okay, so we know he did survive, but barely. So for the final clip from this episode, have a listen to how lucky he was to be found when he did check his watch to see what time it was because the later the better when he emerged from the crate he was so stiff and sore it literally took him minutes just to move his arm a few centimeters upwards to grab the torch he'd attached to the ceiling to give him some light so he could look at his watch 
He got the torch, he turned it on, but then he dropped it by accident. And again, it took him minutes of that slow motion agonizing movement, millimeter by millimeter, to try to reach down and grab it. And while he was reaching for it, a couple of ground crew spotted this strange light shining out of the slats in the crate and came over to check it out. And they looked at the crate's contents on the delivery slip and it said computers. And so they thought, well, maybe something inside the box had turned itself on by accident and they were quite worried about a potential fire hazard. So one of the guys put his eye up to a little gap between the slats to see if he could make out what was happening inside. And once his eyesight adjusted and he registered what he was looking at inside the box, he jumped back and ran screaming, there's a dead body in there. Oh my God, there's a dead body inside that box. Bryant was trying to say something, but his vocal cords were just so completely mummified, no sound was coming out. The other dude from the ground crew was like, there's no way there's a body in there and went over to the gap to have a look for himself. And sure enough, he was looking at a person, but that person's eyes were moving. So he started screaming, it's alive. And so, of course, a crowd formed pretty quickly of ground staff standing around the crate debating, what do we do? Do we break international law by opening mail that's in transit? Or do we just ship it on to London and let them deal with the problem? He's a very lucky boy to be alive. Thanks for recommending that podcast, Coralie. I did enjoy it and I gave it a follow. And okay, that's it for another week. I will try my best to get these these out to you, these episodes out as frequently as possible. Now, the plan would be every week, but I don't think in the short term that's going to be possible. So every second week or so. Now, I have a lot of show notes stored up and ready to go, and I've got some really cool, insightful episodes that I want to share with everyone as soon as possible. Again, remember to email the show at ltbympodcast at gmail.com and let me know if there is something that you want to have me to review on here for you. Now, if you are listening this late in the show, thank you for listening the whole way through. If you email me, you will be the first emailer to the show and you will be the original gangster, the OG, if you want to keep listening to this show. All right, that's my challenge out to you. Thanks for listening. Okay, until next time, thank you. Thank you.